comment, first of all, for the folks out there in Cyberland, that it be a little confusing for a minute here. I'm going to be talking about the clothing of the high priest. But as I was setting this up this morning, I took a couple of color pictures before and after this. So on the final page, the color pictures may not show. So I'll be fairly brief on them. So I'm going to really talk about stuff on here, on this picture. But as somebody just mentioned, wow. The priests couldn't wear their stuff outside of the thing. So probably many people maybe never saw the high priest with all his regalia on, just like they couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant, because when they traveled with it, they had covers over it. So their whole life, they may not have seen it. When you talk about the priest stuff, the regular priests had very plain stuff. They were the ones that did the work and the sacrifices and stuff, the white. The high priest had a very colorful one. Well, I'll talk about each part. But here you see the colors, the blue robe, the white underneath, the headdress, the precious gems on his chest, and then the mysterious thing called the ephod. This one shows it almost as a skirt or an apron. And we'll see some other pictures as we go along. I think this one is wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> Artistic license. So the high priest, once a year, went into the Holy of Holies and put blood on the ark. And he had very special regalia to do that, and I'll talk about that in the slide that's actually part of the presentation. So the clothing of priests, I didn't have enough room there for the clothing of the high priest, so that kind of a bit misleading. This is not what an ordinary priest would wear, even when he was making sacrifices. It was only the high priest. So we'll kind of start from the top and work our way down. The headdress. Maybe we should have just said headdress. We say linen turbans. Both pictures portray it sort of like a chef's hat, you know, to more or less degree. Why I would probably translate as turban, the word in Hebrew is from the word to wrap. So if it's a word for wrap, it sort of suggests it wasn't like a cap they put on with something that was wound around. And so that was called a turban. Then below that, there was a, a headdress that said, Holy to the Lord. It was engraved on a plaque. You can call that the, the plaque or different, different names people might call it. Then the garments from there will kind of just go down rather than working from the in or from the out. So the basic thing the priest put on was a, a long white robe and then a shorter blue robe. And actually, the white robe, interestingly enough, the under one, that was his undergarment. Usually, the long one was on the outside. And the, the blue one was one that would be more, could be like when you were working, you'd have that on. So it's kind of reversed. So we'll just start walking down. From his shoulders, he has some stones to hold things up. They're opals. We don't really know what any of the gemstones are. The exact meaning has been lost. Even the Jewish authorities say we have no tradition out of name Tensil. We sort of name them from the Greek names, but what they call amethyst might not be our amethyst. What they call opal might not be our opal, but we'll come up to that in a minute. So on his chest, you could call it the chest piece perhaps, 
Hosen is the Hebrew word. It was like a folded pouch. Folded over. You could put stuff in it. And in it were the whirling pole. I'll go by that a little bit first and come back and talk about that at the end. So in that pouch was the Urim and Thum. We don't know exactly what they are. They might mean lights and perfections, something like that. I have an Urim and Thum in shirt. I think it's pretty well worn out. I went to Yale for summer school one summer. And they misnamed themselves. Yale names themselves Urim and Thum. They're not either light or perfection. Right now, unfortunately, but Orm and Thome was their, their model. And on the next picture, I'll talk about Orm and Thome. It seems, well, I'll go, I'll go with it as long as I'm at it here. It seems like what they could do, they could take yes or no answers. In other words, there are two things in there. And there's one good answer, bad answer, or delights and perfections. Is it the tribe of Judah? Is, and we don't have a perfect idea. 
So probably the two main choices are bib or vest. We chose special vest. To me, it most is reminiscent of the scrimmage vests, vests that they wear in some sports. You know, you put your arms through, there's no hole in it, and you just have a scrimmage vest. Very elaborate, very nice scrimmage vest, the kind of scrimmage vest. Others would say apron. Here's where I'm going to confuse the issue a little bit. Because this drawing, they have almost like long suspenders. And then it's way down, it's like an apron that you put on at your waist. I don't think that that's correct, but that's, that's one view of doing it. The other view is that it is, you'll see pictures, some of them picture like, you know, a bib, super bib, lobster bib or whatever. They're this far down, some a little farther. So it's basically, I think best is still the best translation. Scrimmage best is a good approximation. Apron wouldn't be a bad translation. We don't really know exactly how the color patterns went. A bit of a guess how the color patterns went. So we'll go with special vest. Then under the vest was a blue robe, which is kind of gray here. Again, how long was it? We don't know. Their inner garment was an ankle-like linen tunic. This is kind of the opposite of the normal dress. Your inner robe was the one you could take the robe off and kind of, you know, about knee level, kilt level. That was usually inside, and then the long one was on the outside. Here, it's reversed, so you can see both. So the priests also were to wear linen undergarments. Sorry, I don't have a picture of the linen undergarments. See, you'll have to use your own imagination. Probably something like boxer shorts that came off the knee. Something along that line. A sash around the waist is not pictured here very well. The medallion on the head is called Tzitz, is the Hebrew name. Netzer, and had holiness to the Lord. And the inner garment was of like tunic. In the sanctuary, of course, they didn't wear shoes, otherwise they could wear sandals. So this kind of gives you the rough idea. Remember, this is not something you would see. Many Israelites probably never saw this in their whole life. Just like they never saw the Ark of the Covenant. That's why pictures of them crossing the Jordan. Northwestern asked me once, how should we draw the picture? And I said, well, it's probably better that you have them come around. Because their, their orders were, whenever the priests were going to move the Ark of the Covenant, priests who were authorized to do it, they'd come in and they'd cover it all up. And they'd put the poles in. And then the guys were going to carry it. The guys that carried it didn't see it. Then they took it, they put it down where the next camp was, they put the tent around it, and then the guys went out without ever seeing it, and then the authorized guys would come in and take the covers off so they could make never see it. So maybe crossing the Jordan, perhaps that was a special event. So I kind of can't say I know the pictures are wrong where they're walking across here. But the normal rule was it was covered people could not see it when it was being moved. Of course, a lot of the rules, they didn't necessarily follow the rules. So the rule and the observance could be two different things. So before we go to a couple quick color pictures, just to have any comments or questions up to here, I'll there, comment a little bit more on the gemstones. Is there a reason that they were barefoot and not sandaled in the temple? 
Well, uh, God told Moses to go to inherit holy ground. Yeah, you holy ground. Um, even now, in Muslim places, you have to take your shoes off. You keep your socks on, but you have to take your shoes off. Okay. Um, can you go forward slide? Please like, can you go forward one slide? Forward to what I had before or to the next one? So you want this one? Yeah. Um, well, why does it look like he's a belt? Why? Why does it look like in um, the picture where he's wearing it? Why does he look like he's a belt around his waist? That was the rule. The other picture didn't show the sash. I called it the sash. You need the belt. Yeah, the belt. Yeah, sash, belt. What is no translation? Doesn't work so well anymore. Girdle. So when you heard your wife and girl, so the old translation was girdle. We decided to go with sash. So <laughs> okay. you, you can take issue with us if you want. <laughs> yeah, when we talked about the girdle in the class, the third graders were like, it's like a magic eight ball. I was like, well, not exactly. Like this one was directed by God. The yeah. stone, the use of the stones or whatever yeah. they were. I said, Magic 8-Ball, that's not yeah, God-directed. No, no God would direct them. Sometimes, like, we go through a complicated list before they get to the one they want. Those little tassels that were hanging in the bottom. That was the rule. I should have mentioned the bells. They were, they all, they really like pomegranates, because it's probably because they had so many seeds. The bells were partly, like, grizzly bear bells. Things that were hanging at the bottom, they have any significance? Yeah, so one's way at the bottom. They're they're pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell. Since since God directed so many pomegranates under, if it was like one of like the tree of life or the tree of knowledge or something, the tree of life was yes, it is like the tree of life. The tree of life was the menorah, the candlestick. Oh. The candlestick. It doesn't actually ever say in the Bible that it was the tree of life, but it says it had buds and it had branches and stuff. So the tree of life. Lenora has the you know the arms, seven arms, and that's the tree of life. That wasn't exclusively used in the Bible. It never says this is the tree of life, but that same symbol is on even heathen things that they made made representation of the tree of life. The tree of life will have the stem, three, a total of six, one in the middle. So you'll have seven. So the Jewish menorah today would be a representation of the tree of life. And sometimes you'll see little buds and stuff on it, it said buds and stuff. So that's where the tree of life was, within the menorah. Hmm. Menorah just means the light sand, the lamp sand. Okay, so we've got the high priest here. The clothing, one last look at it. Here you can see the pomegranates and bells more clearly than you could in the other one. And it never explains why they use so many pomegranates in the decoration. Even some of the priest scepters on the top of the scepter had a little pomegranate, a pomegranate. Probably because the pomegranate has so many seeds and it's kind of a symbolic thing of, of life and of fertility. So this is basically, so you're seeing something that the Israelites, most of them never saw. So it's like, after John the Baptist, we are more privileged than the people in the past. I'll just mention briefly about the stones. We don't know exactly what the call stones are. Just like there are birth stones for different months, each tribe had a stone. They also had an animal mascot. 
don't know if they had any badgers or wolverines. But <laughs> if you go in a synagogue, sometimes you'll, you'll see a modern synagogue, they'll have pictures of the mascot in each tribe in the same glass window. It's a common theme. And so we don't know exactly what these stones were. Sometimes the name indicates a color. How do we classify gems? By their chemical composition. They classify them by what color were they and were they hard. So hard red ones, it wouldn't matter whether they were rubies or garnets or whatever, hard red ones would be one name. Um, sapphires would be a name of blue one. One seems to be the same as turquoise. So each tribe, this one says Shimon, Simon. So each tribe had their own thing. The tassels that they wore around the waist, those tassels, Jews in general did that. For some reason, I don't remember who it was, we were just talking to somebody about this other day, and they said, why did they wear tassels? And it's kind of like what you used to tell your kids sometime, why would you bring it on the dad? Because we go into it. That was true of a lot. That was true of quite a few of the rules. Sometimes, there's, often there's not really an explanation given. We can take a guess at it. And this, I think, is a mind that they're Jewish. We don't eat the same food, we eat the Sabbath. And it always a reminder to us that we are not just one of the nations, we are Israel. So each tribe had its own stone, and they were symbols. When they marched, they probably, like the movies, you always see the Roman eagles, they had something like that. And then each tribe had a mascot, usually an animal mascot of some sort or the other. They always had the same amount of stones, always 12 like that? Yeah, there were 12 tribes, it was always the same. We don't know if they ever had repairs, these or not. So each tribe had one stone. Okay, anything before we leave that? Okay, Ryan, I mean, you can give me like 10.30 and then we'll see where we're going. We're going from there. We'll probably go to 10.45 and then all right. What people Okay, the next thing we're going to talk about is houses. And I'm, what you're going to see now is a typical farmhouse. They had, of course, everything from palaces to little shacks, temporary shelters, and so on. And we're going to talk about the typical farmhouse of the Old Testament people. Somewhat misleadingly, it's called the four-room house. All that means is that a center courtyard and rooms around three sides. They could be divided up differently. Where would you find farmhouses? Not on farms. You find them in, in the village. In other words, for security reasons. Even my grandfather, when they lived in Russia, he was kind of a peasant German farmer in Russia. They all lived in the village, kind of for security, and then they would go out in their fields. Sometimes you'd get some coast fields and you'd get some farm fields. That's kind of why I left Russia. It was already socialist long before the communists. And then they shuffled the land, and the good farmers would get the bad farmers' land, and they did. My great-grandfather was a good farmer, so he couldn't quite see getting his land, and he worked hard for 10 years to the bad farmers. So they went out to their plots of ground. They came to the village. Sometimes they make the houses in the village like circling the covered ways. There would be like one, one entrance in. So this is what we'll call it the typical farmhouse. Called the four-room house, but you see it doesn't necessarily have four rooms. Central courtyard, usually open air, rooms around the outside, work rooms, 
if they were poor and just had a one floor house, at least your cop, you might bring it in to keep it safe. Maybe your donkey. And then along the back, you had the bedroom. It could be one big room. Probably what they did, they rolled their rolls up in the morning and took out the equipment, stuff, or put the equipment, set the equipment out. They probably used all the rules as multiple use rules. They probably are cooking in the central courtyard. So they basically have four rooms. This is a reconstruction. Usually all we find today is the foundations, because these were mud brick. Archaeology thrives on disaster. So what's the best thing that can happen for the archaeologists? The house gets destroyed and it's collapsed. Why is that the best? Because then everything's in it. Some rare cases, even the people, if there was an earthquake. If they move away, they're going to take all their stuff with them. They're not going to leave it, except the broken stuff. And so um, often they find the foundation that some sites, like Beersheba, they build the walls, they you know, pick up stones, they kind of build them back up. This is not realistic. This would only be in a, a well-to-do, a king's tax city would be stone. The average ones would be stone foundations in the ground. They'll show you the plan. And then mud bricks on top. Mud brick, of course, the house fell down. Your friends all came together like the old Amish barn crazy. And they put up a new one. You didn't need any fire insurance. You just needed mud and water. And that was your fire insurance supply. The hard thing to get, of course, was the wood for beams. They didn't have big trees. This is at the city of Beersheba out in the wilderness. Typically, that's what you find. And usually, you, you find even less than this. It's lower than this. It's not so high. You'll have some fallen stones. This one you've seen before. What's that in that corner over there? The lower court, that's the manger, because the animals come in there. They're not going to waste wood on a manger. Wood's too expensive. If you're well-to-do, your manger is going to be sold, carved out of soft soil. If you make your own manger, you make it out of clay. This is at a place called Helcasila near the coast. You see they've got the room for the animals, or the open room, center courtyard, room across the back, and some rooms you can't see. What I like in this picture, you see the rope on top of it. They had like sticks and they put mud on it and they had to like roll it every once in a while to uh, you know, keep the roof from leaking in on you. And generally, you have your fires out in the courtyard. I think in good weather, they probably went right outside the house and did, did their work, brought all their gear back in. I'll just tell you one Hebrew word there on the lower sign. On the bottom sign, there's a word, and it looks kind of like an X, it's actually an A, or a little yod, that's an I and an N. That's the important word you need to know when you're a tourist in Israel. It says, aim, which means do not. <laughs> so I tell people, if you don't know how to read Hebrew, you just have to look, if you see the sign that says aim, you look at anything around there that would be fun to do. <laughs> and you can assume that the sign means do not jump off the sea of Galilee. Uh, do not enter the building. Do not touch. So if you know that one word, you're well equipped to keep yourself from getting yelled at by the powers that be. So this is a reconstruction at a museum down here, Tel Aviv. 
Well, the new people might have two stories. There are a few places where there's foundations like the stairways. And you can see they have stairways going up. And so um, you see a guy rolling the roof. What was maybe in sometimes the most famous and important room in a biblical house? The roof. The roof was flat. They would do agricultural sorting, grinding and stuff on the roof with hot weather. At least the kids would probably go up and sleep on the roof. But watch when you read through the Old Testament how often it'll talk about somebody doing it on the roof. The roof was kind of your porch or your patio if you had a new one that you didn't want to do it. So this is just a course, an artist's impression. It, and it shows bricks underneath and it shows nice plaster on the house. That was only the rich, not the way top like the king, they had stone stuff, but that was the more well-to-do people. Okay, so anything about houses? There were all kinds of houses, of course. There were huts where the shepherds stayed and all kinds of things, everything from great palaces to more extensive houses. Uh, where was your social rank? The one house that was there, it wasn't a roof over the courtyard? Not usually, only in the second story. But the rooms had a roof. Yeah. So, yeah, the, only the second story would be on top of it. So the courtyards generally were open. You can't tell that completely because if the house fell down, it might have been worthwhile for people because beans were so expensive to take the beans away. But in general, appears. They just had, you know, found about six, six or about six across the foot or thatch. Um, I don't think rebuilt yet. The Milwaukee Public Museum. They, it's on the old, the old Milwaukee stuff. They have thatch things. I, I worked there one summer for them on pottery, and uh, the guy was out at Old Road, Wisconsin, getting straw from the harvest <laughs> so that they could rethatch their roofs. The, drop, the downside, of course, of thatching is fire. Fire. So a uh, thatch roof is a little more hazardous. Okay, what about towns? Again, most Israelites didn't know much about a town. They went and visited a town of 5,000. That was the day in the big city. Most of the people lived on the land. That means in these little clusters. Even in the 1800s, 90% of the world was rural. Who lived in the cities in Israel? the tax collectors, the king's officials, the security people. Um, the least recent Levites for that particular region. But most of the people lived on the land. Even in the 1800s, throughout the time of the American Revolution, most people didn't live in cities. Jerusalem was never a bigger city of more than maybe 40,000 in New Testament times. 10,000, 5,000. And they just had little regional centers. So everybody lived on this land until the Industrial Revolution kind of changed that. For one thing, why did they live on the land? Because they needed everybody on the land just to get enough food. And when they got machinery for agriculture, the agricultural workers could become industrial workers. And life drastically changed. So they were, the cities were just like were collecting taxes and so on. They were often kind of circular. Probably because, partly because they were built on the hills, so the hills weren't always in regular shape. This is an artist's conception of the city of Beersheba, or Beersheba, both pronunciations. You see that the storage sheds are around the outside, maybe some stables. So almost everybody in here is an official, and the people are out on the land. They'll have a city gate, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Down below, you see they've got to have a water source, a spring, we'll talk about that a little bit, especially next week. 
the Ming had circular streets. If they were attacked, they, you know, the security people would say, you know, go to section F of the wall. See where they're trying to get in. And so they were generally circular like that. They were not large. And this is just an artist's conception. This is an aerial from a, probably from a balloon years ago. Uh, some of you know John Lorenz, who was a member of Wells. He, he was an excavator at Beersheba, and you can kind of see the structures. The building is against the wall. There were houses building against the wall. And on roof of that, that's where they go up to shoot the people. And that's mentioned a couple times in the Bible. Paul was let down with the window the wall, uh, Ray had and so on. So this is typical, we'll say, I'll call it a regional administrative place. So that's kind of what the cities are like, not big. And it will mention sometimes in the Bible the distinction between a walled city and an open city, a city that didn't have walls. And so, of course, if there was a big danger, like a foreign enemy, they all had to run to the walled city to Jerusalem or someplace and hope to hide out there. The next thing I want to talk about is gates. That's, again, probably a misleading word for most readers. They sat in the gate. When we think of a gate, we kind of think of the doors and the gate. These were not gates. They were gate houses. There were, of course, gates, doors. But they were gate houses. And they were one of the most important places in the city. They were like the courthouse. If you were going to complete a betrothal, the families went down there and negotiated. If you had a complaint to the elders, you went down there. So sometimes when they say they would, I'll meet you in the gate, it means I'll see you in court. I'll see you in court, buddy, when you meet at the gate. And so it was also kind of a social center. You see how it was designed. The road goes crossways along the wall. It doesn't usually go straight up. Why does it go crossways? Well, it's easier to build on a slope, because then you can shoot the guys all the way until they got to the gate. And you can dump, you know, boiling stuff on them and stuff like that. Then when they got into the first gate, they were in a, they were in a box. There was still another gate. And there's guys on all the walls. There's, there's uh, slots in the roof of the gatehouse. So it goes to the gate, people are pouring stuff on you as you're trying to get through. So you got to get through the Cities almost never, unless there was a traitor, they almost never were captured to the city gate. It was too heavily defended. You had to build a ramp someplace else and try to knock down the wall. The gates had air chambers, usually either four or six. So here's a recreation of how they imagined the one at Jerusalem south of the temple. You got to get up there and then you got to get through it. You see how it's running along the wall there to access? So they're shooting you all the way up. They're shooting you when you get in. They're dumping <coughs> stuff on you. The gate chambers, a lot of times the gate houses are kind of these are 50 up a little bit. They're usually called either four-room gates or six-room gates. Kind of solemn that is. Six-room gates. So each of those places, if it was a war and you were coming in there, each of those rooms was filled with guys with swords and spears and everything trying to kill you. And then if it got through, the guys up on the wall would be shooting arrows, arrows at you. So I imagine it maybe wasn't that crowded that you had to have a reservation, but you'd say, a man and a woman was going to get married. The family was going to do betrothal, which was actually marriage, a legal marriage. And we'll see, they said, we'll see you at the city gate around you, you know, on Friday. And they have to say, 
rule one, or did it still one for an empty rule? I kind of think the cop just went one for an empty rule. Whoops, well, uh, Here's one. This, I think, is Gaza. You can kind of see the walls in between. They have a pretty good description of these in the temple in Ezekiel. That thing down the picture, of course, over the cover, that's the grave. 25 2. 25 2? Okay. So we'll just pull through this section there. Holding court in the gate. They often say the king went there. They have like a platform. This is that Kel Dan's. That guy, by the way, is named Dan. He's there. And the, the wood part, of course, wasn't there. The soul part was there. There was a pavilion that David sits there and everybody's coming to see him in the gate. Okay, anything about the gates? One of the, probably the most important place in the city, other than you know, Jerusalem, of course, the temple, the king's palace, the hotshot's palace. Is that the only way in or out of the city? You go through the gate? No, a big city might have seven gates. Like Jerusalem right now has like seven or eight. So it depends on the size of the city. There's a place called Sha'ariah, which in Hebrew means two gates. So in a small town, probably if they called it two gate, that must imply that generally one gate was the way for you know these smaller regional towns. A big city could have many gates, but generally one. Sometimes there'd be like a little gate to fit, you know, if they wanted to let somebody out in the middle of the night or something, they didn't have open big gate, they'd have those little gates. So it depends on the time. I was watching a video about Troy this week, and uh, there were three gates there. That wasn't really such a big city, called the Citadel. So it entirely depends on the size of the place. Depends on how bad their security situation was. Depends on what they could afford. Okay, anything else there? Okay, it's 25 feet. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to close with a quick preview. Uh, any of you old enough to remember when there were no previews to movies, they were called trailers. They were called trailers. So the previews came at the end, they trailed the movie. And so I'm going to give you a brief trailer of some of the things that we're going to talk about next week when we talk about water and flight. I won't talk about the rain, that'll be something for next week. They get rain, almost all their rain in February and January. No rain in June, July, and August. So they have to really be careful how they manage their water. And so that's essentially what it's going to be talking about. From very simple wells, this way of life is disappearing, to more elaborate wells. We'll explore all of these in a little more detail. Sisters, I can remember when my grandfather's farm they had a sister. In case the well didn't have enough water, you had to save the rainwater. And your cistern, you used it mostly for like washing dishes and maybe laundry and stuff. You, you didn't drink it unless you had to. Mm -hmm. This is, we'll talk about this. They had a lot of interesting ways to get into the water, a big hole, tunnel down to it, tunnels to the water outside of the city, and they did a lot of striking things. There's a 1,700 foot tunnel under the old Testament city of Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you're there, you, you can walk through it today. That's very interesting how they constructed this, so that would be a a part of our next week thing. A mystery. This is how it is. Why didn't they, they were really in a hurry. You can think about it this week. Why didn't they go straight through? Very easiest thing to do. You just put some sticks out there, 
And as long as you're tunneling and you can see the sticks, you're going straight. If you can't see the sticks, you're not going straight. But they went all over the place. Why did they do that? How, and if they did it, how in the world they meet in the middle? You'll find out next week. Okay. This is part of that tunnel that you can walk through. There's a clue in there of how they did it. I won't tell you what the clue is right now. Next week we'll talk about it. What's the difference between these two parts of the tunnel? The Pool of Bethesda, we'll talk about that. Always puzzle people, why did they have five porches? Pools have four sides. Why did it say the Pool of Bethesda had five porches? Well, we'll see next week because there's two pools. <coughs> and they weren't pools, were they? What were they? Reservoirs. Reservoirs. They really weren't pools. They were reservoirs. So we'll see how the reservoirs work next week. They built a church inside one of them. The Pool of Siloam. Why did Jesus go to the Pool of Siloam? That's where the people were. That's where the people were. They're coming down to get water and stuff, hang out for a while, catch up on the gossip and so on. So Jesus went where the people were. And wherever the well was, it's a Mary because that's at the well. When you go to the water source, that's where the people are. Pool of Siloam, Aqueduct. This is a nice one. If you're in the beach here, go over the beach where the aqueduct is because you, you don't take the beach umbrella or anything. You can just sit under the aqueduct. And so we'll talk about the aqueducts. The main thing we'll talk about next week is the water system. We'll call water life. And we'll look at this a little more uh, detail, look at each of these aspects. Any closing questions? Okay, we're pretty close to the right? Okay, we'll close with prayer if anybody still needs a book. Uh, we have a couple here, but most already have something. Okay, we'll close with prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you provide us with what we need for our homes, our food, and our life, as you provided for the ancient Israelites. We have so much more blessing and so many more things than they did. But in every age, you care for your people and provide them life and security in you. And teach us also to value, especially how you gave them the water of life for their souls. But next week also how you remind us of the water of life for our bodies. You remind us of the water of life for our souls. Amen. Okay, so next week we'll do water of life. We'll be our meat. It won't follow the sheets that you have. It's not tied close anymore. It's taking one second to go. And it's standing. Like one of the water.